0: This morning, we are engaging again with the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we started this series uh, last week. The very first sort of uh, sermon last week was on the first couple of verses. And I want to walk through the entire first chapter of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1. Uh, this study, as Pastor Nathan uh, kind of hinted at uh, through the reading of these verses, they will be sometimes somewhat Actually, often they will be somber uh, truths that are going to be relayed to you. And so because of that, I'm not going to leave you with that every week. I promise that it is going to be my goal to not leave you in a place where you think everything is vanity. (laughs) Uh, But what I want you to do is to be able to sit through uh, some of those harder discourses. To think about some of these more uh, difficult subjects. And I think that's sort of the point that Solomon is trying to make here. We broke the tension last week right off the bat by saying that the, the ending is sort of spoiled. In the sense that we know the conclusion that Solomon is driving us towards. Towards those last verses of Ecclesiastes 12 which say that the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. This... As I would say, is the same conclusion to which the gospel that we have and we cling to, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the same conclusion that that truth is bringing us towards as well. Which is namely to bring us to a place of simple trust and obedience in God. Now, with that conclusion kind of out of the way, sort of already in your minds, it it, it might be easy for you to sort of check out and pretend that you know what's going to happen. (laughs) I invite you not to do that because what makes Ecclesiastes, at least in my mind, after reading it several times, so incredibly insightful and powerful is sort of the journey that Solomon is bringing you on. And that's really what makes Ecclesiastes so fascinating. Because it's not a narrative story. There's not a plot that you have to find out or a sequence of events. It's like a journal entry. It's like we have raided Solomon's bedroom and stolen his diary and now we're getting to read it. (laughs) That's essentially what's happening because we're investigating and seeing these really personal thoughts that Solomon has given to us. And I think what is... Beautiful is what we find throughout this sort of really personal experience that Solomon puts into this sermon. The conclusion which he comes to is personal. I think that's what makes it so uh, sort of cathartic, if I can use that word. It's, it's something that resonates. Because Solomon himself has gone on this journey and found all of this to be true. True. So, just like we said last week, far from being a book that invites us to a meaningless life, Ecclesiastes allows us, it it enables us to recognize all of the frustrations, all of life's vanities, and still find purpose, still find meaning, still find hope. And that's what I'm, I'm driving us to see, I hope, because it's what the Word itself drives us to see. So this morning we're going to look at uh, the first chapter and and see, I think, a couple of lessons as we find them that allow us to uh, see this very truth. Yes, lessons that I think at first will appear a little bit gloomy, (laughs) appear a little bit somber. I I would argue that they are actually filled with uh, an abundance of grace. So first of all, look at verses 3 through 7. The first lesson I want to bring you this morning is a lesson about time. A lesson about time. Notice what Solomon does here right at the beginning. He says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he, ha- he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. Again, we noted last week that this word vanity literally means vapor or breath. Like your cold breath on a winter day when you breathe and it comes out and it's like a vapor and then it dissipates. It's gone. Keep that image in your mind's eye whenever he says the word vanity. Because here he's describing literally that vaporousness, if I can say that word, in this life. One generation comes, another generation departs from this life. And here he, Solomon, is very accurately expressing and articulating what we know to be true, even if we don't want it to be, is that our lives are like a vapor. James says the same thing in James chapter 1. Solomon emphasizes this, though, as he repeats the point, as he's saying, A generation passes away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. This is the pattern of life. There's a generation that exists and there's a generation that's going to come after them. People live and people pass away. We are born, we breathe, and then we are buried. That sounds really sort of cynical. But he's making a point. Because what does this generation have to show for all of their labor? What profit hath a man for all of his labor which he taketh under the sun? And the point between the lines is nothing. There is no lasting profit. That's what he's asking. What profit, what eternal gain for all of man's labors and stress and striving can he show for it? And he's saying, none. There's no monument to our success. There's no trophies or statues that we can point to to our significance. As time marches on, it marches mercilessly. Whether that you have left an uh, eternal legacy or not. Whether you felt like you've left an impression on this world or not. It marches forward. And such is what I think is so uh, pivotal about understanding this first chapter. is just that sort of a driving motivation of every single human who has ever lived this motivation to leave a legacy to leave a mark to uh, to leave an impression of ourselves on this world we're dying to do that we're dying to leave a legacy when we are uh, no longer here something that our children's children can remember us by i think but what is frustrating as solomon here articulates is just what he articulates in verse 11 that there is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are come. With those that shall come after. This is a harsh reality. But it's one that we have to come to grips with, with, grips with. Which is this. That many of us will be forgotten in the generations that follow us. There is many of us that will not be remembered by our great great grandchildren. Unless you go onto ancestry.com and do all that kind of researching and whatnot. But many of us will fall out of remembrance. That's a harsh thing to come to grips with because we're not made often to wrestle with that fact. We think that we're leaving a legacy that's etched in granite, and we're not. We're going to be misremembered. This is the way the world is. Notice he says that all of nature sort of marches to the same sort of beat. He says, the sun also ariseth, in verse 5, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth at the place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north, and whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run to the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All of nature operates according to this way, where it comes and it goes. It's a circuit, it runs in circles. The point is that we are powerless to stop this. We are powerless to stop this when it comes to nature, and we're powerless to stop it when it comes to our own lives. We will not often be remembered, at least not the way that we want to, oftentimes. And we are also not so important that the seasons, that nature will stop its circuits when we are gone. They will continue forward. They will press on. Because that's how God made the world. Sin has left us in this place where we're striving to leave something eternal. What profit hath a man of all his labor... Of all his labor which he taketh under the sun. What can man show for all of that striving and that excess and that effort? Not much. So the point is what? The point is do not exhaust your life trying to manufacture an eternal legacy with temporal materials. That's literally I think what he is saying here. You want to leave an eternal legacy, and you're striving to do so with things that are just as temporal as you are, that will waste away just like you are right now. You are striving to etch your legacy in granite, and this world is made of sand. It will wash away. Before I get to the application of that point. I want to move on to the second one. Which is we had a lesson about time. Uh, Notice in verse 8. A lesson about novelty. This is where he he has that very famous saying about there is nothing new under the sun. But listen to what he says in verse 8. All things are full of labor and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon declares here. Everything is full of labor. Everything is wearisome. It's tired. Over time, it grows weary and laborious. Why is that the case? Because we are never satisfied. Even when we get what we want, we aren't satisfied. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. We work so hard to uh, to pursue the, quote, thing that will fill us. That we believe will satisfy us. And yet, as soon as we get that thing, we're already looking for the next thing. Have you ever, uh, maybe you've experienced this with your own little children on Christmas. And they are opening a present and they are so excited. And then they move it aside and look forward to the next present. <laughs> there's, there, there's, there's. There is a blackmail home video of me when I was really young, where I did the same exact thing. I'll just I'll confess it to you. When I was young, I used to be a huge John Wayne fan. I had all of John Wayne's westerns on VHS. I remember my mom and dad they gave me this one. I open it up and I'm super excited. And what do I do after I have the VHS in my hands? I throw it over my shoulder and I say, "When's the next present?" When's the next one? (laughs) It's funny because it's true. We haven't much left that toddler nature. Where we get what we want. And yet we're excited for the next thing. We're excited for whenever the next new thing will come. And we'll say that will be the thing that will satisfy us. You know secular experts have noticed this same sort of Philosophy or psychology, you might say, in the world itself. And they've given a fancy name for it. They call it the arrival fallacy. Let me read you a little paragraph, because I think this is so intuitive. Again, this isn't coming from a, so to speak, Christian source. It's coming from someone that is viewing the world in a very specific and real way. This one writer says, the arrival fallacy is the reason some Hollywood stars struggle with mental health issues and substance abuse later in life. These individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay, because when I make it, then I will be happy. But then they do make it, and while they may feel briefly fulfilled, the feeling doesn't last. Now they're unhappy, but more than that, they are unhappy without hope. Because before they lived under the illusion, well, the false hope, that once they make it, then they'll be happy. The problem is that achievement doesn't equal happiness. At least not over the long term. But this isn't a message that most of us are familiar with. In fact, it's almost antithetical to the American dream which tells us that hard work and achievement deliver a happy life. I find that so intuitive. How many times have you felt yourself or let yourself say, I will be happy once I have blank. Once I achieve this. I'll be happy once I have a wife. I'll be happy once I have children. I'll be happy once I have a house. I'll be happy once I finally get into my career. I'll be happy once this happens. Once I achieve or accomplish this goal, our eyes and our stomachs and our ears are never full. They're never satisfied. So long as we are putting our hopes and our dreams, putting all of our proverbial eggs, so to speak, in the basket of achievement, we're going to be left wanting. Left, as he says here, Never satisfied with all of our seeing, with all of our hearing. And this, as he says in verse 8, is a, is, a, uh, is a frustration that man cannot utter. He says all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. This is what leads Solomon to affirm that there is no new thing under the sun. By all of these different avenues that we've uh, had for ourselves, these are all the same sorts of avenues that strive to fill us, to complete us, to satisfy us. He says there, the thing that hath been, verse 9, is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Now, of course, Solomon is not saying that there's no new inventions. We can see in the last decade or so, all of the explosion of technological advances that have happened in our world. Some that I would say have redefined this era. Smartphones and iPads and all sorts of technological innovations that change and define our lives. But Solomon is not denying those sorts of things. What he's saying is that there are no new motivations Behind those things. Notice he says, There is no new thing under the sun. Verse 10 Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It has been already of old time, which was before us. What he's saying there is this that behind every sort of innovation of man who says, Look at this new thing that can fill you, that can give you all that you want and desire, he, that is the point. It's the same thing that's been remixed again. It's an old promise with new, uh, new fashionings, new fixtures. The driving force behind every invention of man has been the pursuit of something that quenches the soul. As we looked at last week uh, in our sort of introduction to this study, man has been built, designed, created by God with a void in his soul that enables him, that has him longing for something eternal. We are after something that truly fills. A man is saying, it can happen through this thing. Look at the thing that I've made. It can fill you. And yea, it may be a new invention, but it doesn't have any new motivations. It's the same thing that's been remixed again. We still have not learned this lesson. That there are no new things that can fill us, that can eternally satisfy. There are no temporal materials that we can fashion into something truly novel that can satisfy our souls. And we haven't learned that. He says there in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of those things that are to come. With those that shall come after. Generation after generation has declared its wisdom. Thinking that they have figured out this frustrating life. Look, look, we have figured it out. This is what you have to do to be happy. Yet this supposed wisdom isn't new. It's. Just a remix of things that have already gone before us. Because again, let me ask you this. When has it ever been true when a man could please himself into everlasting happiness? We know that to not be true. And yet we have example after example of man striving to do this. Just with fancier methods. Flashier gadgets. Fancier things. This is the lesson about novelty. Humanity's pursuit of a full life without the influence of God is just a remix of what happened in Genesis 3. That we can be like God. That we can fashion our own joy and our own meaning and our own pleasure and our own connection and our own relationship without God's involvement. We don't need him. We can be our own gods. Such is what has motivated man throughout the eons of history. And it's the same motivation that Solomon is articulating here. It's nothing new. It's been there since Genesis 3. And he's saying that the outcome is the same. Nothing new under the sun can ever quiet your soul's craving for something eternal. Nothing new under the sun can fill that eternal void that's in your soul. Which brings me to the last lesson, quickly. He says in verse 12 through 18, a lesson about limits. A lesson about time, a lesson about novelty, and a lesson about limits. Look at verse 12. I, the preacher, was king Over Israel and Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom. Concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man. To be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. These verses, I think, relay perhaps one of the most unconventional and unpopular sermon ideas in this modern age, which is this: you know, we're living in a in a modern era where, era where preachers will feed you the idea that their church growers, the people who attend their churches on whichever day they hold their services, are capable of incredible change, radical change. Maybe you've heard stuff like, if you just believe, there's no stopping you. That if you, you have no idea what you can accomplish. There's nothing you can't do if you put your mind to it. This is what fills the pulpits of a lot of health and wealth preachers. They make it clear. Then, that the power for change is within you and I's capability, and therefore, if you are not changing, if you are not effecting change even, you aren't working hard enough. You're not exerting enough energy. Can you see how ironically that message of freedom is actually a message of slavery? You're actually being enslaved to the idea that change is up to you and it's on your shoulders and that the onus is on you. You carry that burden. And Solomon's point here is that mankind likes to believe that in his wisdom, in his reasoning of the world, all of the world's pains and problems can be fixed and healed. They can be erased and made to go away. And he confesses that this is what he explored. Verse 13, I gave my heart to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. I tried to do this. I gave my heart to all wisdom to try and explain the world's problems. And what did he find out? Verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done under heaven. Under the sun, excuse me. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. (laughs) He found out that for all of his wisdom... For all of the things that he could discover, that he could not make sense of all of the sorrows of life. He couldn't make sense of all of the grief that fills this world's existence. He says in verse 15, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. After all of his wisdom and discernment into the world, he found out that he couldn't change anything. And in fact, wisdom increased his frustrations. He says in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Solomon is saying that the more he discovered, the more he knew just how powerless he was to stop all of the things that he found out. All of the injustices that he saw and the violence and the hatred and the wickedness and the corruption that he was made witness to. By all of his wisdom, he could not overcome them. His wisdom had limits. He couldn't change the world around him. I think about this in our very moment. You know, it's fascinating to me. To think about how we think we're not that limited. Such is why I think generations are growing up in a stressed out world. Because we're finding out information at a blink of an eye. That's happening halfway across the world. With much wisdom is much sorrow. We're seeing things that happen all across this globe. And it's grieving us. Because as we increase in knowledge, we increase in sorrow. Because we can't change those things. We know that we are powerless to stop events from happening. There are limits to what you and I can accomplish and influence. And Solomon is confessing the same thing. There are limits to what he can influence. And this, I think, is what makes this sermon so uh, unordinary. It's not often that you hear a preacher tell you that, your, that change in your life is out of your control. But that's exactly what Solomon is saying. The crooked things cannot be made straight. You cannot bend this world back into righteousness. No matter how hard you apply yourself or exert yourself, change is out of your hands. And while that may sound hopeless, I think it's actually a message of freedom. The message that you and I, that we have to change the world, that that is on our shoulders, that's a message of slavery. Because that's a message, that's a mission that you and I were never meant to carry. Never meant to have on our shoulders. Precisely because this world cannot be fixed by any amount of wisdom that comes from you or me. Any amount of power that we exert in this world. they won't be healed by anything that we achieve or we accomplish. Because why? This world is marching at the beat of time. We are not the instruments of change the world needs. You know who is? His name is Jesus. We are not the world's change agents. We point to the one, the true and better change agent to come. The one who has promised to fix all that is broken. The one who is not bound by time. Who is not bound by uh, limits. He is the one who is infinite. He is the one who is for you. Solomon's wisdom allowed him to see that he doesn't have all the answers. Isn't it interesting that the wisest man who ever walked this face, the face of this planet, had to confess that he doesn't have the answers to this world's problems. He can't fix the crooked things. Spoiler alert, neither do I. I don't have all the answers, but I know the guy who does. I'm the guy who points to that guy, (laughs) the proverbial man upstairs, Jesus Christ. He's the one with the answers. He's the one who has promised to straighten the crooked things and to fix the broken things and to heal all of the hurting things. See, the things that we strive for, the wisdom that we apply to this life, the things that we live for and die for and exhaust ourselves for, they cannot last. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes of this book tells us that striving to live for these things is like spending your life building a castle in the sand, it's like trying to build a mansion out of sand while you're at the shore. There's nothing solid about it. When used to build something. It is full of frustration. If you're trying to build a sandcastle. It's a very frustrating process. <laughs> They're not permanent. Sandcastles don't last. At some point. The tide will come in. And it will make that mansion or castle. That you have built out of sand crumble. Reduced to. Nothing but the shore that was there before. Sandcastles are not limitless. They are very narrow field of of construction projects that you can make out of sand. That you can mold them and shape them. And so the point is this. I won't extend the metaphor any further. (laughs) The point is, a life lived under the sun only for things under the sun is just like that. Trying to build a castle with sand. Which reminds me of something that Jesus himself said. You don't have to turn there, but you can mark this down. Matthew chapter 7. You may be reminded of these verses. Matthew seven, Jesus says, "Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which builds his house upon the sand, and the rain descended. And the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I see in my own life oftentimes, my own heart trying to build something that's eternal out of a sandcastle. Saying, look what I've accomplished. I'm nothing but a fool. Who's building something that's going to be beaten by this life. By the winds and the rains by the tide that comes in the same can be said that to put all of your hopes and dreams and securities into things in this life is to put those things in things that cannot last things that are driven away just like sand so instead of living your life for castles at the shore. The gospel invites us to live for this one who is a rock. As, notice what he says there. Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. What is the whole duty of man? To fear God and keep his commandments. That's planting your feet on the rock, on something that cannot be taken away, on something that lasts, on something that is eternal. This is Jesus. He's the point. He's promised to build us many mansions. Remember that promise? Not sandcastles in the sand, mansions in glory that he is establishing with the uh, the work of his fingers, of his hands. He's building them. They last forever. That's the eternal hope that we can point to. It's Jesus himself. The one who is timeless. The one who is limitless. The one whose mercies, as it says, are always new. We're striving for something to fill us. Jesus is saying, I am that one. He's the one. He's the one who is always new and always there. He's the one who is for you this morning. Let us pray.